and welcome to Crashing the War Party. We're here in the heat of summer and Washington is sizzling with schemes to spend our hard-earned tax money and human capital on searching for monsters who destroy. Whether it is Russia or China, this past week has been rife with talk about how the U.S. is going to rise to the challenge of our global military threats. All we can promise you here on Crashing the War Party is that we take this talk very seriously and try to present alternatives. In the second segment, we will be joined by our friend Justin Logan of Cato, who will be discussing the recent reaffirmation by NATO to put 300,000 troops on high alert in Eastern Europe for Ukraine and other security guarantees it is making to President Zelensky to compensate for Ukraine's thwarted membership in the alliance. But first, let's talk about the visit of Israel's President Isaac Herzog to Washington this week. He arrived Monday night and as of this recording, was expected to give speeches to both the House and the Senate on Capitol Hill. According to the Jerusalem Post, Benjamin Netanyahu told Herzog ahead of the trip that Israel has two red lines. Quote, Israel will not agree to an American return to the dangerous nuclear deal with Iran and will act with every means it has to stop Iran from attaining a nuclear weapon, a source close to Netanyahu said. In addition... Israel will not agree to a no surprises policy when it comes to Iran. This means it will will not assure the United States that it will inform Washington before it decides to launch an attack on Iran. Also, according to the paper, Herzog's mission was to emphasize the importance of, quote, expanding the circle of regional peace between Israel and Arab states and the, quote, essential need to fight against the hatred and terrorism that Iran is spreading while it pursues nuclear weapons. Dan, I have a lot to say about this trip, but I'll start out with this. Israel has a lot of nerve to come all the way here to tell us in the middle of a war in Ukraine in which they have largely remained neutral with barely any assistance to its patrons in Washington that we have to get on the stick with more aggressive tactics against Iran. They have double the nerve considering that violence in the West Bank right now is due to the Netanyahu government breaking its pledges to Washington and the international community that it would not continue to build more illegal settlements there. There are now over 144 settlements and outposts with over 430,000 settlers in the West Bank, not including East Jerusalem, which there are currently 220,000 more. This compared to 177,000 settlers in the West Bank and 170,000 in East Jerusalem in 1999. Netanyahu has literally treated every U.S. president like doormats in the last 20 years and has just refuses to stop the settlements, along with the new administration lawsuits or laws that the government has been initiating. The West Bank is becoming a de facto annexation of Israel. Dan, is there enough outrage here to go around? What about this visit that bugs you the most? Well, so I, I noticed in a lot of the cover, the early coverage of the visit, uh, it was an attempt to, to try to, to spin it in, in Biden's favor to say uh, that, that Biden is welcoming the president of Israel, but he's not welcoming Netanyahu, that he's trying to, to do this sort of balancing act. Uh, when really he's he's endorsing all the policies of the Israeli government when he when he welcomes one of their top representatives to come and speak before Congress and and to have meetings with him uh, and and you know we we talk about Netanyahu treating successive administrations like doormats this is 
this is how it happens because there, there's never any pushback on any Israeli abuses, on any Israeli actions, uh, or whatever they may be. Uh, whether it's when their forces kill an American citizen, as they did with uh, Shireen Abu Akhla uh, over a year ago, uh, there's been no uh, there have been no consequences for that, no justice for her family, uh, no no penalties for anyone involved, and no consequences for the Israeli government uh, in the slightest. Uh, we see it with this this idea that that the Israelis are free to launch attacks on Iran, uh, even if that ends up triggering a larger conflict and and somehow we don't get to have a say in it and, and they're not going to tell us anything about it uh, when, when you have zero accountability for your clients and you never rein them in you never penalize them for anything they do they will assume that they can get away with anything and and so they do and the the indulgence that uh, the u.s shows uh, not, not just israel but of course all of its middle eastern clients is uh one of the, the huge problems that we have with our foreign policy in the middle east uh, it, it not only hurts our interests uh, through the actions that they take, but it also implicates us in their wrongdoing because we're subsidizing it. We're we're underwriting it, and and then we provide them protection uh, to the consequences that they face when uh, they provoke backlashes from their neighbors. And so it's uh, it's a sign of how uh, warped and and imbalanced the relationship is that they can come bearing demands. Uh, and and insisting on telling us what we must do with our own policies, while saying that you can't tell us anything about what we do, uh, even when we're engaged in an illegal occupation uh, and and uh, creeping apartheid. Yeah, and I and I and I fear it doesn't. It never gets any better. There 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 are never lessons learned for the Israelis. Uh, case in point, uh, the members of the so-called squad, the progressives on the House side have announced that they are going to boycott or, you know, and we're recording this, this is already going to be happening uh, as of this, uh, you know, the, this podcast being published, but they announced their boycott and, you know, you know, Congresswoman Jayapal, the head of the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus had made some comments about, and I don't have the exact comments right here in front of me, but comments about Israel being a racist state. And she was forced to uh, walk those comments back because of the outrage, um, which, you know, she is she was specifically talking about the policies in which there is a two tiered system in Israel. This isn't something that is um, made up. This isn't a lie. This isn't it. Uh, this isn't a subjective assessment on the part of Jayapal. Uh, Israel passed a, a national state law just four years ago, making it a Jewish state and, and reaffirming. Um, that it would continue to be so, which um, enshrined a lot of the, the two-tiered system for Palestinians who are in the occupied territories and, Pal and Arabs that live in, in Israel. But e even in Israel, Arabs feel that they are subjected to, to, a, to, 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 to double standards, uh, whether it become uh, home ownership, uh, the justice system education, uh, and, and whatnot. And, and this is, this is all well documented. Um, and I think, you know, Jayapal was absolutely referring to that, particularly the treatment of the Palestinians in the uh, occupied territories. Um, and, uh, she was, um, absolutely, um, 
you know, um, condemned by her fellow members of Congress. Uh, Democrats signed a statement uh, late Monday night, basically saying uh, that uh, they were happy uh, that she um, walked back her statements and uh, reaffirming um, that Israel is not a racist state and that we have this ironclad relationship. Uh, Republicans did the same. Uh, they were uh, so, supposed to be debating a bill, a resolution on the House floor in response, reaffirming that special relationship. And so Israel is watching all of this. And I mean, they're not stupid. They don't, they realize how much leverage they have to do the things they do, including continuing the settlement building, because Washington um, crumbles uh, like a cookie with any suggestion that they should be um, uh, 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 should push Israel um, any any harder than it already is, and they all whip into shape. And um, you know, it's too bad because I feel like with this amount of leverage, and I mean, I'm talking about three billion or more dollars a year that goes to Israel for military aid, not economic, military aid, that we would have more leverage to say, listen, we would like, if you are going to take this amount of money from us a year, we would like your government to reflect our values, our values, which we profess to be um, liberal, democratic values that that support uh, equality. Uh, for all people, it, you know, can you please reflect that if you're going to take our $3 billion a year? And we never do. We never do. And it just highlights the hypocrisy that we've often talked about on this program. Right. Well, and, and the U.S. Is, has typically refused to to condition its aid to its clients because if it, if it actually enforced those conditions... Uh, the, the aid would be shut off because, uh, I mean, presumably the, these states are, they, they may decide that the aid isn't worth making changes to their policies. Uh, but, but no, but nobody, firstly, nobody in the, in Washington wants to cut them off even when they violate these conditions. They, they make excuses for them. They come up with reasons why, oh, well, we don't want to drive them into somebody else's camp. We don't want to lose them to China or, or whatever. Uh, and so there, there's always there are always these excuses for whatever bad behavior it is we're talking about, and and so the, it, it ends up becoming a uh, a blank check uh, that that these states can then uh, count on to, to always receive regardless of what they do, uh, and and then the U.S. is on the hook uh, being being held responsible for enabling all of this. Uh, it's 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 very frustrating because. You, you would think in a relationship like this uh, between well, what's supposed to be the most powerful country in the world and its security dependence that the the patron would be able to call the tune at least and and we don't even try uh, we we don't make that effort we we're happy to let them set the agenda for us in their region uh, and uh, and then we end up finding ourselves in in real uh, difficulties uh, down the road. I mean, let's let, to, to turn to Iran for a second. Uh, the Israeli government under under Netanyahu and, and also under other leaders, but but specifically under Netanyahu, has been instrumental in driving U.S. policy towards Iran in the wrong direction. He agitated for the Trump administration to get out of the nuclear deal. 
Uh, he has been pursuing uh, these sabotage attacks inside Iran that have prompted the Iranians to uh, build up their nuclear program even more than ever before. Uh, and and so the the security situation in the region is much worse uh, because of the actions and policies supported by this government. And and there is there are zero consequences for that client uh, when it does these things that are obviously inimical to U.S. interests, to regional security, and international uh, stability. And and until someone finally uh, puts their foot down and, and insists that the Israeli government shape up and, and, and not engage in these destabilizing activities, where we're going to get more and more. And, and the U.S. will then be uh, in an even worse spot, uh, possibly with a regional war with Iran, possibly... Uh, with other uh, other conflicts that we haven't even thought of yet. Our guest today is Justin Logan. He is Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's an expert on grant, U.S. grant strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His articles have appeared in many publications, including International Security, the Journal of Strategic Studies, Strategic Studies Quarterly, Foreign Policy, the National Interest, and the Foreign Service Journal, among others. Recently, he co-wrote an article for Foreign Affairs with Joshua Schifferinson called Don't Let Ukraine Join NATO. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always our pleasure. And uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, the article that you and uh, Josh wrote. It's a uh, it makes the case as well as I've ever seen it made uh, that we should not uh, be bringing Ukraine into NATO. Uh, that it, it makes no sense for U.S. and allied interests. Uh, I mean, we could also talk about whether it makes it really makes sense for Ukrainian interests. But your focus is on whether it makes sense uh, for us and for uh, for NATO. Um, you make the case for closing the door to NATO membership, uh, and as you said, keeping Ukraine out of NATO simply reflects U.S. interests. Uh, so, can you tell our listeners a bit more about why that is? Yeah. Um, so the basic story that we tell is that, you know, the United States doesn't have an interest in Ukraine worth fighting Russia over. That is in contradistinction to the Ukrainian interest in Ukraine, which is survival, right? Keeping your territory intact, maintaining sovereignty over your country. So that's as close as you can get in international politics to a kind of unlimited interest. The, the Ukrainians have an almost unlimited interest in Ukraine. The United States, of course, which lives thousands of miles away um, and has many powerful countries between it and Russia, has some interest in Ukraine, but it is quite limited. Um, and if you look at the Ukrainian military performance in pushing back Russia, if the U.S. interest in Europe is counter-hegemonic, if you'll forgive the IR mumbo-jumbo, right? If we, What we want from Europe is preventing one powerful country from dominating Europe, be it Wilhelmine Germany, Nazi Germany, or the Soviet Union. We've reached Shangri-La, right? This is as good as – no country is going to dominate Europe. And for that reason, war with Russia in Ukraine, risking nuclear escalation potentially, is just not warranted by the stakes there. And so that's the kind of starting point for our argument. And uh, one of the things that you bring up is that there's, there's a danger in bringing NATO into Ukraine in the future now that the U.S. and the alliance have shown uh, that they don't believe that Ukraine is going to war over. 
Uh, they, they, they've had the opportunity to fight for it uh, in this conflict, and then they have chosen uh, to go out of their way not to do that. And so that makes any future pledge to fight for Ukraine hard to take seriously and, and invites future challenges, right? And so, so it, it sets up a, a scenario then, uh, as you guys argue, uh, that if you extend this guarantee to them, uh, you, you might end up reneging on it because you didn't really mean it, uh, or the, the Russians won't believe it and will end up attacking anyway, thus drawing us all uh, into that conflict uh, that, that could then lead to, uh, to a major uh, catastrophe. Uh, so uh, talk, talk about how that uh, extending the guarantee to Ukraine might uh, jeopardize the whole alliance then. Yeah, so you put it pretty well just introducing it there, but I'll try to expand on it a little bit. This is kind of a weird argument for Josh and me to make because when we tend to hear the word credibility in Washington foreign policy debates, we tend to get our backs up and ready to fight um, because I think people have – normally when you hear arguments about credibility, it's if we don't stand down the Russians in Ukraine, the Chinese will take Taiwan, a kind of credibility contagion argument where by not demonstrating that we are bloodthirsty enough in one theater – uh, uh, adversaries in other theaters will draw inferences from that that we're also not bloodthirsty in their theater. But in this case, I think there is reason to worry about the credibility of a potential Article 5 commitment to Ukraine for the reason that you pointed out, right? It, it's rare in international politics where you would sort of staple on a treaty commitment Um in an area where either there's still a war ongoing where the prospective ally has chosen not to enter or there has just concluded a war where the ally decided throughout the course of the war not to fight for the stakes involved. And so that's why we kind of worry in this case, why would Putin or any prospective Russian leader credit a U.S. commitment to fight for Ukraine when, on the one hand, President Biden has said, we're absolutely not doing that because it would be World War III if we did. And you really don't even hear Republicans, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, or, or if anything, even more dovish um, on the prospect of fighting Russia in Ukraine than is President Biden. So given that, given the read of American politics at the kind of commanding heights level, um, you have Democrats who say it'd be World War Three, no way, dude, and Republicans who are uncomfortable with the level of support being provided to Ukraine already. So unless we think, you know, Mitch McConnell or someone is going to become president in 2028, um, I, I think there's a lot of reason to worry that the commitment itself wouldn't be credible. And if there, if it weren't credible, as you point out, and, and Russia did decide to attack or to, you know, kind of nibble away at the periphery of Ukraine, we'd be faced with two really uncomfortable uh, choices. One, going and fighting Russia on the basis of the paper commitment itself, right? Which is to say, we have to do this now, guys, because we made this formal treaty commitment, um, which would be kind of a kooky thing to do. Um, or on the one, on the other hand, standing down and just saying, we'll send lawyers guns and money, um, but we're not going to uh, uh, actually fight for the commitment itself. And so as Josh and I point out in the article, it's true that a lawyerly reading of the Washington Treaty says that Article 5 doesn't say the United States will automatically go to war for you. Um, that it did, you know, and Washington fought uh, very hard to preserve that prospect in the treaty itself during the negotiations uh, of the treaty in 1949. 
However, over the course of the treaty's life, Washington has spent great sums and run great risks to try to make Article 5 credible, um, be it extended deterrence in the 1950s and 1960s, um, and that, you know, over several generations of European policymakers, Article 5 has come to mean a U.S. commitment to fight for you, right? Joe Biden says we'll fight for every inch of NATO territory um, today in the present. So if for that reason, if we were to back down from that and say, yeah, 75 years notwithstanding, we take it back, guys. We're just going to send um, some attackums and, you know, thoughts and prayers. Then you'd have a contagion within the alliance where you could see the Balts or Poland saying, hey, wait a minute, which do we have the old Article 5 type commitment or do we have this new Article 5 type commitment that means something completely different? So we do kind of worry about muddying those waters a bit. Right. And, yeah, and, you, and you talk about the, the possibility of creating what is then a two-tiered alliance where uh, maybe you know the, the newer members are are sort of second class and don't don't get the full protection. Uh, they they get the, the only the basic plan, right? Um, and that that would then end up creating a, a rift or, or end up breaking the alliance, uh, as as the new members realize that they've been sort of left out in the cold. Um, That's exactly right. The the the, uh, the original sin that led to all of this, of course, as we as you as you know, as as our listeners will remember. Uh, is the promise that NATO made 15 years ago in Bucharest uh, at the behest of George W. Bush. Uh, George W. Bush always doing so much for international peace and security, uh, as he did. Uh, and and it created the sort of a worst of both worlds situation where it antagonized Russia, as, as we've seen, uh, without really offering the protection to Ukraine that uh, the promise of alliance membership is supposed to provide. And so, uh, so it, it sort of left them in this limbo uh, that they've been stuck in ever since. And the alliance just repeated the same mistake at the Vilnius summit, uh, where they essentially kicked the can down the road again and and refused to, to either move forward or move back, and just keep things as they are. And that suggests that there's there's not really consensus within the alliance on Ukrainian membership, and and there probably won't ever be. Uh, there there will always be some holdouts that think it's a bad idea. Uh, so wouldn't it be better to come clean with them and tell them they aren't getting in, and then we can we can deal more realistically with the options that are around. Um, and and do you think that might even help to establish a ceasefire in the current war? I, I, let me let me beg off on the last bit. Maybe it might. Okay. Um, but on the the disingenuous thing, look, my policy views read to the random observer in Lviv or Kiev or wherever as pretty anti-Ukraine in, in scare quotes, if you will. Right? I don't think that we should admit Ukraine to NATO. I don't think we should provide it a pathway for admitting it to NATO. I'm a little squirmy about the level of support we're already providing to Kiev and the rhetoric that is surrounding that. But all that said, I really do sympathize with Zelensky's little rage fit last week um, because they really have been led down the primrose path on this thing. And I do think that the, you know, I was on German TV last week or whatever, and they said, well, if that's what you think, then why do they keep saying Ukraine will become a member of NATO one day? And I was just dumbfounded. I said, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't figure out why they would keep saying this, right? Because I think even, you know, you see, for example, the French now, Macron has said, well, we, we're definitely in favor of providing a pathway to France joining NATO. But I think there's a certain amount of big talk from behind America's skirts on this thing where you have, you know, 31, now 32 members of the alliance um, 
and any one of them has veto power, it's kind of easy to talk big when you know that Germany and the United States are against something. And so you can be the hero and say, we're in favor of you. You know, we, we, we really would stand up for you. But I think, you know, in the intervening years between Bucharest and today, um, like in any government, there's been a certain amount of wishful thinking and hearing what you want to hear on the part of Kiev. And what I would hope is that, um, you know, the, the Zelensky outburst last week um, is indicative of a ability to read between the lines to figure out that the foggy aspirational rhetoric um, is masking real serious material limits uh, to what the United States and with it, NATO are willing to do for Ukraine. So I still feel very uncomfortable about that. Yes, I'm not, you know, one of these commanding heights diplomats, but if there's something that I had no intention of ever doing, I wouldn't say I have the intention of doing that. Right. It's just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a simple Midwestern boy at heart. Thanks for coming on the show again, Justin. Um, I wanted to know what you thought about, uh, again, going back to Vilnius, it seemed uh, that after or during the, the outburst by uh, Zelensky and his officials, the uh, alliance was scrambling to come up with an alternative to the membership and ended up, you know, agreeing to a package of guarantees, which included a reaffirmation of putting 300,000 uh, high, you know, high alert troops in Eastern Europe. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, it sounds to me that in their effort to make up or compensate for the thwarted membership, that the alliance is promising a lot of things to Zelensky that A, it might not be able to come through with, and B, might be just as provocative to Putin. So can you talk a little bit about security guarantees outside of, of the NATO membership offer? Yeah. I mean, NATO is a weird institution, right? Um, the transatlantic community is a weird community. Um, and so there, you know, this 300,000 figure, um, to, to, to the best of my knowledge, Stoltenberg just kind of hatched from thin air. Uh, he just sort of came up with that idea um, in a, in a kind of freestyle format. And now everyone's talking about, oh, we have 300,000. We don't have 300,000 troops. Um, I don't think there's a real prospect in the policy relevant future of having the 300,000 high readiness troops, um, to defend, uh, uh, Eastern Europe. So uh, there's a real sense in which former U.S. ambassadors to NATO, former secretaries general, are treated as, um, uh, you know, capable of speaking to the interests of the United States. And a lot of these people have a difficult time disentangling the interests of NATO as an institution, the interests of Ukraine as a nation state, and the interests of the United States from one another, right? We've heard perennially, the only way to secure Ukraine is via NATO membership. Well, that may be true or it may be false, but it's not a case that red-blooded Americans should favor admitting Ukraine to NATO. It's a case that red-blooded Ukrainians should favor Ukrainian uh, accession to NATO. But there's a real sort of 
um, um, overdone cosmopolitanism in the transatlantic community. Um, and I'm not trying to be a, you know, um, MAGA hat wearing Trumpist Neanderthal on this stuff, but you really do want to make a case to Americans that this is in the American national interest. And there have been all kinds of hokey political science uh, uh, you know, Laffer curve level analysis where Putin, if not stopped in Ukraine, will next go into a NATO country or, you know, the Chinese are going to draw inferences about being able to take Taiwan. Um, these are dumb theories that are advanced in clumsy ways. And I think at such a superficial level that they really, you know, it tells us something about how dumb they are and how clumsily they're advanced. So, you know, I I think that you want to make a case for the United States that Europe is a really important theater for us in the year of our Lord 2023 um, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so I really worry, you know, about the extent to which, you know, Yaptehub Schaeffer or Jens Stoltenberg or whomever um, is taken as speaking to the interests of taxpaying regular Americans as opposed to his, their institution. I'm concerned about that, too. And I'm doubly concerned when I see polling. Like there was a recent poll released by the Brookings Institute about American opinions uh, uh, regarding the Ukraine war and how much Americans are willing to sacrifice for Ukrainian uh, success. And I was very surprised, or maybe I'm not, uh, was shocked, but somewhat surprised that, you know, Democrats on the level of near 50% had said that they were willing to uh, experience more inflation, more energy crunch, uh, even sacrifice American troops for Ukraine. Now, Republicans were, were further behind in that, but the fact that nearly 50% of Democrats on those three questions said they were willing to make those sacrifices signaled to me that either they, this is very performative, you know, they're taking the poll and they want to, they want to show that they are behind Ukraine. And so they're answering not on a realistic level, uh, or B, that they haven't really felt any of the impact in their own lives of the tremendous amount of money that we've been sending over there. And so to them, it's just this abstract, it's almost a virtue signaling. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about at what point will Americans actually see that this is not in their best interest to, to keep supporting? And, and do you see that happening anytime soon, either here and also in Europe? Yeah, I don't see it happening here anytime soon. Foreign policy in the United States is really an elite sport. Um, and presidents and leaders have the ability to lead um, the electorate um, based on kind of what the political scientists will call partisan cues, right? So Joe Biden is a Democratic president. And he says X. And so, you know, Democratic voters don't really like scrutinize and say, does this comport with my values and beliefs? They just sort of say, I'm a Democrat. And the Democratic president says it's a fight about democracy versus autocracy. And I'm for democracy. And so let's go. Um, now, I will mention in that one poll, the one thing that uh, that stands out is that there was an increase in Republican toleration for costs, essentially an increase in support for Ukraine. I, you know, I haven't looked at this very deeply, but I think 
for better or for worse, it's very difficult to overstate the impact that Tucker Carlson had on Republican voters' views of the Ukraine conflict. I didn't agree with everything Tucker said about Ukraine, but I think that it's quite clear that he had an impact. And I wonder if that, if what we're seeing in the increase in Republican support may reflect the the, the removal, let's say, of uh, Tucker Carlson from the public's scene, except for the Twitter presence. On Europe, I think the case is, is, is an open question, right? There's a sense in Washington there was a sense in Washington before last winter that this could get really ugly in Europe with the Nord Stream pipeline gas being offline, et cetera, et cetera. It was a historically warm winter in Europe. The Europeans were gobbling up LNG supplies that were headed for places like Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, you had rolling brownouts in places like Pakistan and Bangladesh for that reason. Um, but the Europeans muddled through, right? They got through it. The Germany is in a recession now. They're going to have tens of billions of euros of budget cuts. The UK is doing UK things. Um, so there's real economic dislocation in Europe that is partly related to the war itself. But I think it's not quite clear that Europe is out of the woods when it comes to missing Russian natural gas. Um, and there was this term of art that was come up with what the Germans were going to engage in last winter was demand destruction. That was how they were going to get through this, which which demand destruction is a euphemism for closing factories. Right. You're just destroying demand for energy. Um how long do you want your government to be in the business of demand destruction? What are the implications of this? So it may be the case that Europe is in a better medium term standing than I fear, but I'm not yet convinced uh, that Europe is out of the woods when it comes to missing what to this point had been the fuel, literally and figuratively, of particularly German economic growth, which was really cheap Russian natural gas. Um, and with that still being offline, going into another winter, uh, I think it's very much an open question about whether and when European public opinion may say, guys, it's time to wrap this thing up. And, and, uh, that, and that may end up having knock-on effects uh, for our economy as well. Uh, one of the points that you make in uh, coming back to the foreign affairs article, one of the points that you and Josh make uh, is that the, the U.S. has uh, many other concerns in the world uh, beyond what's happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, it has many other commitments that it has to honor, and and we've we've seen uh, that the, the U.S. is already overstretched with too many commitments around the world in too many places. Uh, but there's still this constant pressure in Washington to add more. Of course, we just uh, Finland just joined, and and Sweden is in the process of joining now that Turkey has uh, dropped its objections or seemingly dropped its objections. Um, and, and so we, we just keep adding more and more without really thinking about how we're going to, to fulfill these commitments. Uh, what, what would have to happen for the U.S. to recognize how overstretched it is and begin a process of retrenchment? Well, let me start by saying I hope we don't get to that point, but I fear we may be, right? So the downside for someone like me is the big economic dislocation that might precipitate a, a move in the direction of the foreign policy that I think we should have would have all kinds of crappy consequences domestically uh, for the economy at home. So I would kind of rather have a wild and crazy foreign policy that breaks a lot of stuff overseas and robust economic growth at home so that, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, our groceries don't get more expensive and I'm able to send my kids to college and all the rest of it. 
Um, however, I worry that we may be butting up against hard economic constraints, right? Um, if you look at the CBO projection uh, in terms of the national debt and deficits, um, you know, we're reaching unprecedented levels in terms of debt as a share of GDP. I think by 2032, don't quote me on that, um, we're looking at 118% of GDP um, in terms of debt. Uh, north of trillion dollar a year deficits. And, you know, you, you know, the, the thing about unsustainable things is they end. Um, and so I worry that, you know, what we will probably do is kick the can down the road as long as we can. And then rather than moderate, uh, our aims over time, um, hit a hard stop, right? Hit something that where all of a sudden it looks like the dollar is in play uh, as reserve currency or something of this nature. I, I should, you know, uh, preface this by saying I'm not an economist, um, but I do know that ultimately you run out of money. That's that's the extent maybe of my economics knowledge. Um, and I'm not saying we're running out of money today, um, but it looks like we are slowly, gradually getting to a point where we can't do more of everything. And there's been a real sociology in the Washington foreign policy establishment for my entire adult life and even further back that you can do more of everything, that there aren't guns versus butter trade-offs like we talked about in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and so I do worry that, you know, Barack Obama was going to pivot to Asia uh, in 2013, and then we did several-year detour uh, uh, defeating ISIS, right? Um and you talk to people in the National Security Council, the overwhelming majority of meetings at the National Security Council during the Obama administration were about the Middle East. The overwhelming number of staffers at the National Security Council in the Obama administration were working on the Middle East. And so if we pivot to Europe now and we're going to give you know, the transatlantic community the keys for several years, um, the politics of Asia, to say nothing of the domestic economic choices that we need to make at home are not going to wait uh, for us to fritter away another decade or two um, in Europe. So I do have this kind of looming fear back there um, that something ugly may be around the corner. Well, on that cheery note, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop. Uh, we're, we're out of time, but uh, thanks very much uh, for coming on the show. Uh, Justin Logan of the Cato Institute, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Justin. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. Mm -hmm.